0: Podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Welcome to the Wagon Wheel Podcast. I'm your host, Jared Kimber, and this show is part of the ninety nine point nine four Network. On this show, we record weekly with questions from the audience. This podcast is funded by Patreon, which you can join by clicking a link in the show notes. And there are many other benefits, but one of which is to ask questions first on this show. First question is from Aditya, who says... What are your first impressions of Todd Murphy? Do you think he can become Lion's successor once Lion retires? Well, after the first test, people wanted him to take over then. Um, <laughs> so he's already there, man. Um, no, I think, I think I've think i covered this before. Yeah, I definitely think he has the ability, based on what I've seen of him so far, and that's a little bit of shield cricket, a little bit of big bash, and now in India, I think he has the sort of a more of an all-round spin presence, which is – that's that's Lion's main skill, right? And, and I th- kind of think – if you're not Shane Warne or Bill O'Reilly or or Clary Grimmett, your main role as an Australian spinner is really resting the the um the quicks as much as possible, but helping them on all the different surfaces. So, you know, we know Nathan Lyons ever been an Indian specialist, although, you know, he's got better um through this series, but that's never been his main skill. But his main skill is that he's still quite good in England and you know, he can do a job in South Africa and you know, uh, you know, can be very good in other places um at times. And that that is something that we don't know 100 percent with Todd Murphy, but if you watch him, that's kind of what he projects as, right? Someone who who should be able to do that. So uh, whether he can or not, I don't know. But uh, yes, at the moment, I would say that he's it, not since line. Have I seen a bowler? I thought this could be a front line spinner for Australia, rather than Steve O'Keefe, Matt Kuhneman, t- so, you know Mitchell Swepson type players who are fine, but you know they're probably only going to play more so in Asia um, than anywhere else, or spinning wickets, not just in Asia. Will says, you mentioned a lot recently how there's no statistical evidence that left arm as footmarks help uh, an off spinner. Uh, it's a left arm finger spinner. not an. Oh, sorry. No, it is an off spinner. You're right. Sorry. Now I'm getting confused, Well, You're correct. Uh, have you found any other myths that have no statistical backing but are regularly used on commentary and by coaches? Yeah. So the big one when I first started was that coaches would obsess about the first ball of an over. They would talk about winning the first ball of the over um, and how important it was. But when you looked at the data, the first ball of the over actually had no uh, had no outcome on the rest of the game at all. I can't remember. Let, let's say it's a T20 game and your first ball of the over goes for four or it goes for a dot ball. You still pretty much under the next five balls going to have 1.3 runs and over. Uh, uh, sorry, 1.3 runs of ball scored regardless you know so it, do, it doesn't change anything there um so that was a big one the other one is left hand right hand combinations one thing i looked up at and specifically was you know we hear left hand right hand combinations bother bowlers um and that there are more wides bowled because of left hand right hand combinations and i'm pretty sure i did a piece for Crick info many years back now that actually shows that in one day cricket and t20 cricket you have more wides bowled in um when there are two left handers than when there are right-handers. So it's not the left-hand, right-hand that uh, bothers bowlers. It's the left-handers in general. Um, and I don't know. I haven't looked at recently to see if left-handers still get more whites. Uh, but that was certainly something else uh, that I was told and believed it made sense. But left-handers are more of the problem um, than anything else. I'm trying to think. There's the third one that I want to say makes sense, but I, I can't think about it off the top of my head. Um, but mostly... There is a sense of truth in, in, in the things that players say, um, and it makes sense. And they might have got it slightly wrong uh, for a few for a few different things. Oh, actually, the, the other thing that, that we do know is, and this isn't just with data, but also just talking to uh, players, the whole thing of, uh, you know, he didn't pick the slower ball. Well, you know, if you're watching on YouTube now, I'll be able to show you, but a back-of-the-hand slower ball looks very different than a front-of-the-hand slower ball. Um, and, you know, there are certainly times when players don't pick them, more often than not, it's because the ball is doing something so weird. So, back of the hand, the ball goes up out of the hand, which means if your first thing is, Oh my God, it's coming at my head. It's coming at my head. We should clip that for social. But uh, whereas, and then it dips at the end. And so, even if you've picked it, your first instinct might be, Oh my God. And then you think, and then you're trying to play a shot. You may be already out of position. Um, and so, I think that's the other thing that we we talk about a lot. I pl- the, the other one is the, com- the conversation again about, slow balls and what pace they should be. Your slow ball, and I'm saying this if you're a club cricketer or if you're a professional, your slow ball pace is very unimportant. There are certain situations where you want to change it up. You know, There are certain wickets where you want to put more revs on the ball because you want to get it stuck in the surface more. Um, If you've got a back the hand slow ball, there are certainly ones where you want to maybe put, again, you want to get more bounce or whatever that may be. But essentially, when it comes to slow balls, the pace doesn't matter. What matters is what the ball is doing or whether it can be picked. Those are the only two things you should focus on. So if you have a slow ball and it's very easy to be picked and it doesn't do anything special as it travels down to the batter, as in it doesn't curve, it doesn't spin, it doesn't dip, it doesn't bounce, any of those things, then it doesn't matter if it's five kilometers slower or 40 kilometers slower, it's going to get whacked, right? It's not going to be a very good slow ball. Having said that, if it can't be picked, then that 5K um, drop is really, really important. And I think those are the things off the top of my head, Will. It's a really good question, actually. Um, those are the ones off, off the top of my head that make a lot of sense. Uh, sorry, that don't make a lot of sense. I should say those are the ones that come to mind when you say things that don't, that when we, we say things. Oh, the other one's probably hard length, but I'll leave that for another day. And not hard length, um, uh, heavy ball. Heavy balls are a really interesting one. Uh, Bloody Bugger says, in the past we've had many batters who could bowl part-time spin. Do you know any examples in the history of specialist fast bowlers who could bowl part-time spin? The closest I know is Sobers, but his primary skill wasn't fast bowling. He was a frontline um, opening bowler. I'm not sure. His primary skill, He was just because he was better at batting. Um, but yes, uh, so what you're talking about is mixture bowlers. I'm not sure if you, it's not a name that we use a lot in cricket, but uh, if you go through the database, that's kind of what we call it. Um, and I'm not sure when that term came about, probably before World War II, uh, because before then, a lot of people were mixed to bowlers. And, you know, you had someone like Barnes who people still. Argue whether he was a spinner or a quick. You know, he said he was a spinner, and other people said he was a quick. Um, he certainly put a lot of re- uh, revolutions on the ball. We know from reading Fred Spofforth's book. I say we; I've read Fred Spofforth's book. if <laughs> Very few other people in the history of of, of mankind have probably read Fred Spofforth's book. But um, it's really interesting, by the way. He talks about baseball and cricket. Anyway, yeah. So, so we know that uh in those days there was a lot of mixture bowlers. Uh, and there are even if you look at quick info now, there are a lot of bowlers who are said to be seamers. But you know, when you read the match reports, they talk about their spin. And, and I'm talking about like you know, up until 1920s, really. It's really from after mid 1920s that you become a spinner or a seam bowler. And so that's the big change. Uh, so if you're looking at people who are both, uh, let me try. I won't. This won't be an exhaustive list because there's a lot. But um, it was Sobers played at the same time that Carson Garvey played in India. So there's two. Um, yeah, Tony Gregg was another one. Ian Botham took a five-wicket haul bowling off-spin. I wouldn't say he was a real mixture bowler, but he he could bowl that. Obviously, Colin Miller is probably the most famous modern-day um, example. Um, you get them in first-class cricket um, at times. I want to say I want to say Wag uh, Graham Wag. I think his name was um, who played uh, for, uh, for a very good bowler for Glamorgan. Uh, would bowl seam and then would bowl spin. One of the f- famous ones, and it's funny, we're going to talk about slow balls again, because of course we are, because it's me. But the man who invented the off-cutting slow ball, so bowlers had always used the off-cutter you know, to, to vary their pace, but they bowled it in a slightly different way. But Franklin Stevenson, the West Indian, he was playing uh, as a professional in England and as many professionals bowlers found out when they were playing you know in England that they were asked to bowl an obscene amount of overs and so he would turn to pardon the pun off spin and when he would turn to off spin uh, he started to realize that he could probably bowl the basic technique of off spin but at full pace and that's where the slow ball comes from uh, the off cutting slow ball comes from so he was another one who could do it um Trying to think. Uh, obviously, there's a few all-rounders uh who have done it over the years. Australia had two back to back. They had Mark Warren, and Andrew Simons, who both bowled um uh off spin and um and pace. As you said, those are not specialists in 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 you know, for their bowling, but they were certainly two that did it. Um th- there are there are stories of bowlers doing it on occasions for different reasons, uh, you know, injuries, um, everything else. Uh, I'm trying to think if there's any other it's it's a really really interesting list of uh, when you look at the mixture bowlers and also what we don't know is what percentage any of these you know people bowled um, when when it comes to what discipline that they used so we're we're a little bit you know confused in that but I just want to see if I've got I see if Cricket Info still has mixture bowlers here oh they do mixture and unknown so we said sobers I think Garvey's down as a spinner. Oh, Bill Johnston was another one. It's got Morris Tate here. See, he was one that didn't come to mind. Uh, Monty Noble is one of those early ones where it's a bit either way. Uh, Colin Miller's obviously quite high up here. Uh, 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 Frank Warabold's been sometimes as well. Uh, They've got Mark War on the list. Uh, Reggie Swartz. Uh, one of the, um, uh, South African, uh, leg spinners is another one who could sometimes bowl seam up. So you can see that there's a few of them out there, but what you're asking is, is how many of those are frontline seamers? There probably aren't as many front Oh, John Reed's another good one from New Zealand. So Colin Miller is probably one of the weirder ones that I suppose for a very long time in his career was a frontline seam bowler. And then came to spin later on, and I would say Tony Gregg's another one. I think in modern cricket, Tony Gregg would probably bowl a lot more of, especially he would have played you know even more in Asia and maybe in T Twenty conditions. I think Tony Gregg was a legitimate threat uh, with off spin or seam, and obviously Colin Miller uh, the same. In fact, at you know Test level, Colin Miller was probably a better off spinner, um, whereas for the majority of his career, he was a seam bowler. Um, so it's a re- it's a really interesting question. When you see bowlers in the nets, Joffre Archer and Jimmy Anderson, I've both seen them bowl really good spin, like proper, you know, Joe Root-level spin in the nets. And so it does seem to be something that has gone away, but certainly before World War II, it was a lot more common. Sandeep uh, asks a question. He says, with England doing well in ODIs, even without Bear, Stoke Brook and Root in the team, is there any need for the ECB to ask Stokes to come in out of retirement for the World Cup? I mean, they haven't been doing good, though, have they? They haven't been playing particularly good one-day cricket for a long period of time. They lost 2-1 to South Africa, and they won 2-1 against Bangladesh. You know, two teams they would assume that they're a lot better than. I'm not saying either of those were particularly full-strength sides or anything. I mean, Ben Stokes just gives you something extra, right? Uh, I mean, your point about Bairstow, Brook, and Root is is very, very fair, but none of those are frontline bowlers. So... I think with that in mind, they have the ability to uh, to bring in Stokes. We're all assuming Stokes – well, I say we. Me and several people who know him and a few people that follow the England team are assuming that he is going to come back. We don't know uh, how much use he is, whether he can bowl. All these things are going to factor in. I don't think they bring him back as a specialist batter uh, just because as, as good as he is with the bat, I'm not sure that, you know. as you said, there's so many other people that can bat in those positions. Um, they may not feel that way. But if he can bowl, even five, six overs a game, I think the flexibility he gives you is so massive that they would probably still think about him. I'm not sure if there is a hairier sport than cricket. From the early greats WG Grace and the demon Fred Spothith onwards, cricket has always been Hesuit, Boom, Gooch and Dev with their upper lip work. Shoaib and Imran's incredible mains, not to mention Lily's incredible chest rug. Our sport loves curated hair and so does Manscaped. They just look after the bit that you can't see. So if you want a cricket-inspired downstairs pubic moustache, we can think of no item better than the Lawnmower 4.0 from Manscaped. Whether you're steaming in from the ladies' end or mounting a strenuous rearguard, always put your trust in Manscaped, who will look after your lower order. So go to manscaped.com and buy their kit with my red inker code, all one word, and get yourself 20% off and make yourself 20% sexier. Luke asks, what is going on with 99.94 podcasts? Are they no more or just taking a break? So I think I said this on one of the other episodes, Luke, but they are taking a break at the moment. Uh, we run out of finances is the best way of putting it. We're broke. It's not dead at the moment, but obviously, you know, I, I could I, – I don't know when I'm going to get money in. Um, I'm not really sure what the situation is. All the hosts, you know, standing by, but at this stage, uh, it's on a pause. So all my stuff will continue. Obviously, edges and surges have moved back on uh, on their own, Uh, but all the other podcasts uh, have been paused at the moment. But I would like to think it's not going to be dead. Uh, You know, it's my baby, and uh, you know, I put a lot of time and effort into it, and I still want it to come back, and I still know that. Cricket needs it. So I'd love for it to come back. But as it currently stands, you know, I don't have the money to fund it myself. So, you know, waiting for someone else to bring that money in. Manon says If you're in India, what is more important? Losing the last test, but winning the World Test Championship, or winning the last test, but losing the World Test Championship? Personally, the home record means more to me, but maybe that gives the BCCI confidence in these poor pitches. Um, uh, if I'm uh, more important, I think the ICC tournament is more important to me uh i mean i'm hoping that's where teams are heading otherwise you know we might as well get rid of it um the home record doesn't mean as much to me there's also a chance of drawing the last test of course as well uh being that we only have four wickets on day one although we don't assume that uh the you know always bet against the draw in modern cricket obviously but um there is certainly that but if i was india i would think also the world test championship because you know, you give yourself a chance of winning a trophy. And, you know, if if I'm not mistaken from all my time on the social media, Manon, uh, people seem to want India to win a trophy uh, very badly. <laughs> so the World Test Championship, if they could win that, I would have thought that would have brought more happiness and less trolling. And isn't that what life is really about? may not be. Ian says, what are the differences you find between intensively watching a game with a view to writing a piece on it and actually commentating on the game and which do you enjoy more? Um, yeah, it's very, very different. I think when you are, so, so when you're commentating, it depends on the commentary shift. You know, if I'm doing a cheap commentary, uh, and it depends on the commentary job as well. If I'm doing ball by ball, um, I'm probably on for 20 minutes out of every hour. And if I'm working for someone who doesn't have a lot of employees, I'm probably on for 30 minutes every hour. That's really intense. You see everything and you have to be on top of every single thing, um, which means you do watch the game in in a way that is very hard to replicate if you're not commentating. Uh, you know you you're coming you're watching the game on a level where you're terrified you're going to get something wrong um and that you're not going to or you're not going to have something to say so you're really focusing in on it if i'm doing um co-commentary that's a little bit different co-commentary is a little bit more chilled that's when you have the ability to sort of think and you know stretch your brain a little bit more you're not worried about having to fill every single silence or or anything of uh You know, in that particular way, you're probably thinking more, answering questions, um, maybe looking some stuff up, whatever that may be. Then the third job that I also do when I'm commentating is analysis, which is much more like writing. So I'll get to that. So writing is the way that I've covered cricket the most, and I don't have one style that when you know on a writing day I don't just do this or this. Some I have different styles. In fact, if you you know if you want to do my sports writing course, you'll see that. There are many different ways that I kind of follow a game during a game, depending on what I might want to write, how I'm feeling, what I think the stories are, how the game is unraveling in front of me. But it's very very different writing because I can get up and I can move around. I can have a lot of micro conversations. So I think some of my best pieces probably come from, you know, I've got this idea, now I need to know what, you know, because you'll have like, former players around um you'll have old-timey journalists around you'll have a bit hardcore beat writers you'll have other writers like you around you know in my case the you know some more, more writers like me around you know you can bounce ideas off um different people um that's really different than commentary but also in commentary y- you have that 20 minutes of hardcore watching but you need a rel- rel- uh, you know a release from that and sometimes it can almost be hard to focus on watching the cricket for the next 40 minutes because you know, it's almost like it's all in your brain. Um, there are many commentators who literally they do their 20 minutes and then they spend 40 minutes following the cricket but not watching it just because um, they need that break to have the energy to come back again. So they're very different. Um, I think probably the perfect for me is when I'm doing the analysis um, stuff for talk sport just because it's you—it's thinking like a cricketer but with the ability to use all the things that I You know the the little bits that I say. It's probably why I started writing more notes pieces on my emailer, is because there are little bits during the day that I really want to say. But when I I was always trying to write the article in one big thing, and so you have to cut out all the bits that don't fit the article. So the analysis thing allows me to follow the game really closely, but also still do other work, still have conversations with everyone off off microphone, um, and still write and research and you know talk to Crickviz and to Gary Morgan, our statistician, and anyone my friends you know send whatsapps to someone like you know dan Bredig's out at, well actually i was gonna say dan Bredig's out at the um india australia but uh, you know w- w- you know vish or um wigmore or will mcpherson or whoever's out or, you know george whoever's out there send them a message and uh, rory all those sorts of people so yeah it's, it's just it's very very different i think i probably prefer the middle role um it, you know probably suits me the best because i do love broadcasting um but i also love writing so it's almost like a combination of the two um and but my paths are really different most people only ever get to choose one and then they do it and then they know what that is whereas i bounce around every different style of (laughs) of following a cricket game from sitting on the bench with the players you know all the way through to you know working on the broadcast Ben says, what would be the best way to make home conditions important but not farcical? The ICC control uh, over all pitchers and curators. Curators protected from uh, board and team interference. Obviously, some don't listen to their board's team anyway, as we've seen, uh, but the varying conditions is one of the best things about tests, but a little balance needs to, to happen for them to be protected. So I think I've always said the best system is that we actually know more or less what cricket pitches do over a long period of time. If a test match has had lots of um sorry if a, gra- a, te- a ground has had lots of test matches or t20s or one days whatever you're looking at in in, in your uh, specific thing here we have the data we have the hawkeye data to be able to map it very clearly and say this and then of course if something goes wrong the groundsman could be like look yeah the pitch usually does this but we've had four weeks of monsoon rains and so we didn't have, have to do this or we're, we're in it we're in a drought we've put extra water in but it's been so hot that the, the pitch has changed I think those are, that's what the ICC should be doing to make sure that each wicket is still like that wicket is naturally because, as you say, I think it's a huge advantage for cricket to have that um, uh, variance in it, but then to have some oversight of, to be, okay, we've got the data here, but even we. We do have the ability to have a look at first-class grounds, and it's not you know first-class records for the grounds who have less international or, or T20 ground, um, stuff to be able to have a look at that. We, there should be a proper profile for every international ground of okay, this is more or less what it does. Let's see if this in this pet, um, test it did that, you know, um, and have a look at it from that perspective. I have talked to people at the ICC about you know taking over pictures. I mean, there's no way they could. There's no way any. The major boards, and not even the major boards, like the top nine boards would ever allow it at this point. Um, but going forward, it, it obviously does make a lot more sense. I find it interesting that, you know, the ICC is a lot more involved in the World Cup um, pitches and everything now. Um, but I think we're still a long way off from bio, bio, uh, bilateral. I almost said bilateral. I don't know what bilateral is. <laughs> uh patrick says how much effect do you think john boy will have on getting americans to watch a major league cricket who otherwise wouldn't i mean it's a fascinating thing i don't know how many followers john boy has through his social media platforms but for those who don't uh, uh those of you who don't know john boy is a baseball um youtuber you got you know very very famous for covering some interesting events um and then you know he's just built on that it People think I have a crazy work ethic. John Boy seems to work about twice the amount of hours a day that I do, um, you know, creates incredible content. And I don't know how, maybe it was during lockdown, uh, you know, he got into cricket. Um, You know, I should get him on a podcast one time. He's commented on these, you know, he's even come to some of my um, shows to comment at times as well. Um, You know, so he's really getting into cricket. He he produced a really good video on the India-Pakistan game. And, you know, he's done done some really, really interesting stuff. And I think he's worked with Major League Cricket a little bit, done done some um, things with them. And I think they are going to use him going ahead. I don't know how much cut through his stuff has, but I I would say this, that I think in general – I've never had more people who support my work that are Americans from non-traditional cricket backgrounds. So, you know, dinky die Americans. So, you know, there's always been guys like Peter Penna. Uh, I, You know, I met some great guys when I was in Minnesota and um, New York a couple of years ago uh, that were certainly, you know, hardcore cricket fans without any background in the sport. But it does feel to me that it is changing very, very quickly. And John Boy would, uh, John Boy and Major League Cricket would be, uh, from my perspective, a very good gateway. i have been told from, maybe because I grew up watching, you know, basketball and uh, following American sports, so a lot of my coverage is a lot more American style than probably traditional cricket coverage is. So again, I'm probably a part of that as well. But I think the more options. But realistically, you know, it's going to be, you know, SB nation Locked On Network, The Ringer. New York Times, The Athletic, whoever else, it it little by little, um, those sorts of things are going to have to uh, have to happen. I think John Boy is a really important part of it, but obviously, you know, he's aiming at one particular market. You kind of want the whole thing to come um, from it, but um, it's great that we have that. It's not existed before, you know. People like Wright Thompson and Pablo Torre, you know. Uh, following cricket is really, really cool. I think we'll see. Uh, Sam uh, Fassini is another one, uh, the uh, basketball uh, writer. You know, there are people coming to cricket slowly, and and it's not just in America either. You know, you're seeing it more and more from people who are non-traditional people uh, coming to cricket from other countries than we've ever seen before. Um, And, you know, that's just the internet and you being able to find your niche weird shit, which is me. Ben asks, why is the fact that England have a married couple playing together in the same team barely talked about? The silence is quite noticeable, I think. Uh, is it market demographics? Uh, teams if Stokes and Root or Hardick and I fell in love and got married, then played together, it'd dominate headlines. Also, I love the idea of bowling a ball that it heads straight to your wife at second slip. Um well, for, they're not the first. I think it's probably the, the other thing. So Dane and Marazan were uh, the the first sort of public couple that I'm aware of. Um, I think there had been relationships, but that even then, I mean, so, well, they had definitely been relationships with their teams, but maybe not as public at a time when women's cricket was as famous. Also, marriage is different than girlfriends, all those sorts of things. But it's way more common. I mean, you talk about Stokes and Root think about the percentage of male athletes that are out um, as gay compared to the uh, amount of women athletes who are out and gay. It's a completely different landscape and always has been. And, you know, m- male uh, you know male athlete to uh, um, homosexual is such a tiny minority that if you, you know, the chances are that you even have two in the one team that would then be attracted to each other and then stick around long enough to get married is so slim that it would be a huge story. Um, I think Siva Brunt and um, well, the Siver Brunts, uh, I almost said Siva Brunt and Siva Brunt. And that just tells you how silly, uh, uh, th- how much this has affected my brain as a cricket writer. I'm just trying to remember a name change midway through the career where two players have changed to the same name. It'd be like Magic Johnson changing his name to Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. Well, to Magic um, Abdul-Jabbar. That would have been awesome, by the way. But that, uh, that one's, uh, that you know, I was too young for that anyway. But um so yeah, I think it. I think it's big. Uh, I think women's cricket is still only you know growing itself. So I don't think it's the biggest thing ever. But I think you know if you look in women's sport um, in around the world, you know we've seen it with tennis players before. We've seen um, is it Sue Bird and Megan? I don't know what the footballer's name is, uh, but yeah, there's a basketballer and a footballer uh, that are married in American sport. Um, uh, but I want to get to your last point because I I was waiting for them to, um, uh, to make it public because obviously we'd known for a while, and there's lots of relationships within the women's game. It's, a, as I said, a very common thing. Um, but we, we'd we known about that one for a while and I was waiting for it to make it public to write a big article. And by the time it happened, I think, you know, kind of lost the steam of it. But we've had a lot of relationships in women's sport before, as I said. This is a really interesting one. You're talking about the idea of bowling a ball that is edged straight to your wife at second slip. That's cool but i think it takes it to another level where you have a relationship where in in um, in Marazan Cup and uh, Dane van Niekerk for a long time where the most important player in your team is is your star bowler who also bats a little bit in Marazan and then your captain is the other most important player. And the captain then makes decisions for that star player based on when she's going to bowl, where she goes in the batting order, what her fields are and everything else, but she's the star player. It's such a weird dynamic because most sports don't have the captaincy dynamic. So even if you have a couple, it's, you know, kind of a little bit more, you know, whatever this is, I've always said that that particular one is really, really fascinating to me. Um, but yeah, I think there's quite a few, I, I don't know now, um, now that it's more common, you know, it's probably, uh, I, I wouldn't even be able to track how many couples there are across it. That, and that's the other thing, you know, we've never, as far as I'm aware, we've never had a long-term couple, um, when it comes to men's cricket, um, I'm sure, you know, more than one gay cricketer have slept with each other. I mean, I'm just guessing, but, uh, no names. <laughs> I don't actually know, but I'm just saying it would make sense. But, uh, I've certainly never heard of a relationship or anything like that before. Um, so, you know, it was quite a step up from nothing to that, whereas women's sport was quite a small step up. But, um, but yeah, one one thing I, w- I do want to do one day, I'll try and get Marazan and Dane on a podcast and um, try and get them fighting about uh, the worst bowling change that Dane ever made um, <laughs> or the worst fielding position or when Marazan was pu- pushed down the order um, and was angry because that would be awesome. <laughs> Uh, Manon asks, how similar are Dinesh Karthik and JJ Reddick, uh, their introduction to the media? They both uh, seem like a similar breath of fresh air, uh, which was very needed in both sports. I think their introduction to the media is actually really different. So Dinesh Karthik uh, you know, gets picked up by Sky, sort of starts at the top, um, if you will, Um dropped into a series, basically brought there because they wanted, you know, a different kind of Indian voice. And, um, you know, one way or another, they obviously thought Dinesh was, um, uh, you know, going to be good for them from that perspective. Whereas J.J. Redick, you know, a very well-known player, played for a huge college, Played didn't he have some ridiculous record of having, you know, the most seasons in a row of uh, playing in the playoffs uh, for the most different amount of teams or something stupid like that. So kind of everyone in the NBA knew J.J. Redick, um, and so in some ways, Dinesh Gardik and JJ Redick are similar levels of players that I think most casual fans know their name, even if they maybe couldn't tell you that much more about them. But JJ Redick came to it through podcasting. He became a very, very good broadcaster. He has a very good uh, podcasting po- um, partner as well. Um, and I, I would assume there's a lot of work that goes in. Also, JJ Redick does a phenomenal amount of work. I think there's some big differences between them. I think at the moment certainly Dinesh is not on that level as a broadcaster. Uh, I think he he shows a lot of talent there. They both like to go to explaining really what modern players do. But I think the difference is that I think JJ, and I could be wrong, but he feels like someone who's always going to try and work out what is going on on the court and how it works. Whereas a lot of players, obviously, they do that when they first retire and then they end up just being the old heads. Um, And well, in my day, you know, we didn't need to reverse sweep. On well, your day, you scored at four runs and over in the middle overs and you threw a party. Um, <laughs> so it's a little different. And, and I think – and and so we don't know where Dinesh Kartik is going to go, whereas I think we have a very good idea with JJ Reddick. The other thing with JJ Reddick specifically is that he's really wor- willing to talk to seniors and f- lead, uh, you know, broadcast legends and everything and have a go at them and say that they're being wrong. Dinesh Kartik is very, very um, – I don't even know what the word, but very respectful of players who came before him and other broadcasters and everything else. Um, so they're different kinds of personalities. But I think, you know, I've been saying this for a long time. You know, it's why I wanted someone like Dirt Nanus involved in broadcasting. It's why I tried to get him involved with the ABC. Simon Kadich was another guy I tried to get on the ABC. Ricky Ponting was another guy because I figured those were people that would continue to do the work afterwards and that thought about cricket in a slightly different way. And I think we've seen with Ricky Ponting, I was pr- probably right there. I don't know if we've seen that much with Simon Kadish. I think he's done a little bit of commentary, but Dirt is certainly someone who does a lot of research and um, tries to come up. And because he comes from a different background, he thinks about things differently. Those are the sorts of people when I'm you know, involved in commentary uh, and putting together commentary teams, which you know I've done a couple of times now. So what I'm really trying to find is, you know, outside the, the basic broadcast skills, is, you know that ability to continue to do the work and we just don't know if D- Dinesh is going to continue to be that person at the moment. I, I certainly thought that at times he was fetishized for you know wearing nice shirts and you know being young and being a, a player and because he went into a, a group of guys who weren't like that, I just want to see him continue to work on the art form. The biggest problem with cricket commentary is that most cricket commentators don't work on the art form. And that's where it falls down. And we have to listen to poorer commentary. And Dinesh Carter can continue to grow and become better and become someone more like... And I should say, I haven't listened to many games that JJ Redick has called. So I don't know what his actual commentary is like, but I know what he's like talking about the game, you know, as a talking head. And he's certainly very good from that perspective. James asks... If the purpose of DRS is to get as many decisions right as possible without excessive time wasting and not to determine who is better at gambling on reviews, why shouldn't players be allowed to receive advice from off-field personnel before deciding whether or not to review? I think the idea, I mean, it's a a fair question. I'm trying to think of, I think the the reason always was um, that you had the 15 seconds and that, you know, uh, that it was an on-field decision made by everyone there rather than, you know, uh, bringing in people watching it on delay and everything else. And that would cause so many problems, TV, you know, if the TV camera went down, people would, I think it would br- bring extra problems from what you're saying, but I think it was, I, I think, and I'm not hundred um, percent. sure about this, that the idea was to keep the drama on the field. So it's more of a TV gimmick. I mean, what you're saying makes some sense, uh, I, I, I believe the idea was just to, um, you know, make it more about Willie or Woti on the field, the people involved rather than the people off the field. I would say this is my experience as a commentator, when we see, you know, especially when you're commentating off TV or if you're commentating live, but you have the TV there that that can actually cause more, uh, problems. And it's very hard to also give information from off the field. So if they did do it, I'm not sure we'd see a massive rise in correct decisions um, straight away. I could be wrong um, with all that, but I don't think it's as accurate as as people might think it would be. Um, but I, again, I, I don't know. But I, I my thought back in the day, and I never really asked specifically, but I think you know, the the general mood was that they wanted it to be an on field decision because of the drama involved of, you know, the eleven players or the two players coming together and everything else. If it's just two guys looking to the the their balcony and, and a bunch of people watching the TV, perhaps that disappears. As an analyst, I'd probably prefer to be able to do it that way, but you can take the emotion out of it a little bit. But yeah, it's a it's a really good question. And Christopher asks, uh, is games like England, Bangladesh actually benefiting anyone for England? All the players have multiple caps now, so it isn't new players getting a chance and team balance isn't right due to unavailability. No, I think it's a very important series because it's the last time they're going to be in Asia. You know, you can practice on spinning pitches back in England and, um, and all that sort of stuff. But, you know, Asian conditions are different. Touring Asia is different. Um, you know, uh, the speed of the pitches, what the ball does, all that sort of stuff even if it's just five or six players, it doesn't really matter about their position because it's it's more about the conditions, you know, the heat and everything else. Um, and if you are England and you want to see some of these players in new positions, perhaps because you might want to try them in the World Cup, again, it makes a lot of sense. And obviously from a Bangladesh point of view, you know, they are quite happy to be playing in this one uh, because, uh, you know, they get the ability to go up against a very... Um, Uh, you know, a very strong opposition, even if it's not quite full strength, you know, they can try some things. Um, And well done to Bangladesh on that T20 today uh, on what we thought was not going to be a very nice wicket that turned out to be a belter. Well, a belter for Bangladesh anyway. All right. That's the end of the Patreon questions. We'll have a quick ad break here and I'll just have a look at the comments and see what is there and uh, pick and choose. And I'll be back in a moment on Wagon Wheel. I'm Jared Kimber. I always will be. Let's start with Max Watkins, who asked a super chat. Cam Green, is he as good as people say he is? Uh, the problem with young around it, and there's a really interesting question. Here, someone said that he's underrated. I don't know who he could possibly be underrated by. <laughs> um, uh, I mean, at this point, you know, I'm not saying he's one of the most overrated crickets in the world because that's a, kind of a negative uh, comment and I I don't mean it in that way but when I mean he's overrated I mean that people are definitely you know very excited about him um I think his bowling has come on when I first saw him I was a bit like he bowls like someone who hasn't bowled a lot and all at, at his height honestly all he needs to do is hit a length um it's whatever that his natural length is on a pitch he doesn't have to worry about changing as much as other bowlers do he doesn't even have to worry about sideways movement as much he could just be a length bowler and be that would make him a success if he can add anything else to his game and clearly he does have more skill to his bowling than that or i think he does anyway um he could certainly um do something from that perspective but you know max he's he is a very good bowler who i think might take a few years to develop his batting is obviously his strongest suit but I think he bats like a very tall person um, would have before DRS, you know, in that he gets his front leg in the way a lot. And I think we saw with someone like Shane Watson, who's also obviously a taller batter, um, that that doesn't work anymore, and you just get LBWs quite a lot. Um, and when he tried to fix that, he started to get bowled. That's okay because we Australia kind of only need him to what average thirty five with the bat. If he can bowl, um, you know, if he can, if he can be a genuine. Uh, fifth bowler for them gives him so much flexibility he should be able to average over 35 this is a weirder era so you know um it's a tougher era so maybe you um it might be 33 32 at the moment but if he can do that for five years and then work out how to make more runs in the long term he can then you know move his average up into the mid to low 30s maybe even low 40s um over a long period of time and if he's still being able to bowl then that's a that's a huge advantage i think from from that perspective so yeah i think <laughs> the thing with all-rounders is max that they're all overhyped because especially seam bowling all-rounders because there are so few of them it's so hard to be a top level top six batter and also have any genuine seam bowling skills so i'm not talking about mark Waugh and andrew simons and chris harris i'm talking about legitimate top um seeing bowling skills it's really rare to have someone like callous or sobers um e- even if you look at the, all those great all-rounders of the 80s you know imran khan was a bowler um Kapil dev was a bowler even ian Botham's was probably a bowler um who and they all then had batting skill on the back end of that, right? Um, you know, in some ways, in some some of them were obviously a lot better and some of them got a lot better in their careers at different times. But that's why Cameron Green is talked about so much um, because he is, he, the, the what he gives sh- the Australian team is such incredible flexibility. Um, and also, there's a difference between being a good bowler. It's a bit like when Ben Stokes first came through. You know, England suddenly had the ability to go, well, we've got a 90-mile-an-hour bowler. Who only needs to bowl twenty overs a game? We don't even need to like worry about over bowling him. Although they've tried at times, um, that's such a huge advantage. It's not like, like imagine Ben Stokes had the same skills as uh, you know Chris Wokes or Ollie Robinson or you know uh, one of those kinds of bowlers, he wouldn't be as much use. And I think it's a bit the same with Cam- Cameron Green. I know they have Josh Hazelwood, but having two guys who are releasing from that height allows them to probably pick you know if jai richardson could ever fix, fix his hamstring you don't have to worry about that sort of stuff you know if there's another you know very fast bowler who's shorter or you know they had an they had someone like chad sayers coming through again they have the ability to use cameron green um to bowl short at times and fast at times it's a really huge advantage um so you know there's a big video coming up at the end of this in the Australia Test Match about Ravi Jadeja, where I've tried to you know explain just the impact that all-rounders can have. Um, and that's why everyone's talking about him so much. Swami Nathan says, will Dilshan fit the Mike Hussie category of Bradman for a few years? I've never heard that one before. Baby Bradman, perhaps? My memory of Tillichar Dilshan is he never had a period in Test cricket. Um, so I'm, I don't know if you mean Test cricket or another format um, where he was that dominant. Uh, Let me just have a quick look. He never had back-to-back years where he averaged over 50. So I'm not particularly sure when you're coming from that. But just on a brief look of his record, um, I don't know if you're talking about limited overs as well. Uh, But I think he he ended up averaging 41 in test cricket. And I think that's probably fairly accurate of where he was as a player. I always felt he was a player who could go on a spree. And I think maybe that's what you're talking about. So I'd say him more as a spree batter. And Usman bit can be a bit of a spree batter as well, where they go for periods where it looks like they're the best batter in the world, but they also go for other periods where nothing much happens. Uh, a Shant says, uh, or asks, I heard your latest podcast on peak batting age. Do you think Kusul Mendes, who's 28, is about to reach his peak years? I, I would think that, Everything that um, myself and Amol talk about, and it's worth going and having. It's a really good episode. It'll be up on YouTube in a few days, but it's out on Red Inca now if you want to listen to it, um, or it was already out two days ago if you're on Patreon. Um, It's a really good episode, and what we talk about is he would be an example of a player who was obviously an above-average talent when he was young. So he fits that sort of curve that you would expect him to be very good around the ages of 28 to 32. I think most players who are around that star level of batter you would expect them, and, and and it might sound weird because, you know, we've seen him struggle for many years, but on talent um, and what he did as a young age, he's he's that sort of style of a player. You would expect them to be better around the age of twenty to 30, uh, 28 to 32, um, you know, but it's a really interesting episode about, you know, ages in test cricket, And I think there's a few things uh, that do what's the best way of putting it there are there are a few trends there that probably go slightly against the way that people think about age in cricket especially when it comes to spin and pace rohit says with test cricket dying out in non-three big nations is it viable to open up domestic cricket in the smaller countries to invest to investment by india australia and um sorry india england australia uh, like the sa20 what how would they invest in it um it's a bit different than the sa20 the sa20 isn't invested in by BCCI, is it it's invested in by private owners so why would private owners want to invest in first class cricket in sri lanka um, and why would the cricket board from australia want to invest in it so i don't see that as being like for life the one thing i would say is and, and i've said this many years that you know England should have a base in West Indies and Australia should have a base in Sri Lanka and India should have a base in South Africa. Um, so I suppose by doing that, uh, maybe you would invest some money in those situations. Um, but I'm not sure that's quite the same as what you're saying. Oh, Ben's back on the back of my married couple question. Do you think cricket is in a better place to have a top gay player come out in the men's game as opposed to other major sports? No, I think, um, I think cricket is an incredibly conservative game. There are many parts of there are many cricket nations. When Steve Davis came out, I think I worked it out that almost fifty percent no, was it forty percent of cricket where where it was played had some sort of law where homosexuality was a crime. Um, I think that's right. Maybe it's maybe it was lower than that, maybe it's thirty percent. And it depends on how you work in the West Indies islands. And I think Sri Lanka might've been changing if they had a law at the time, I think it was Sri Lanka. So it's no, (laughs) is the answer. I don't think people actually understand how conservative cricket is when, when you work in it. Um, It's a, you know um manny from Test Match sofa used to have the joke that the um the players union in in english cricket was the only union in the world that was far more right wing than their um the people who hired them um it is a really right-wing sport i mean i don't think cricket would have a huge problem with it these days um but i think there are probably other sports that are in a better place um, i would have thought like a sport like tennis would probably be in a better place to handle it um just because they've had so many out women over the years and, you know, men's and women's is always more interconnected in tennis because of the, the majors. Um, what else? Uh, what's another sport? I mean, you know, NBA basketball is obviously very progressive, uh, as well. Um, I wonder how it would go there. Um, probably, I don't know, winter Olympics, you know, ice skating and things like that. You know, there are some sports that are just probably have I would think anyway, without knowing the the true facts, but would probably have a lot more um, gay athletes, naturally. Out athletes, at least. So I wouldn't have thought the cricket is at the top of my list. But I'm not a gay person, so, you know, there might be gay people in cricket who disagree with me. But Nikon says, uh, can you think of some NBA-style trades between international teams that would make both sides better? If you were India, would you consider trading Akshar Patel? And then what would you want back? Akshar Patel for Baba Azam? You'd probably have to throw in someone else, wouldn't you? Giant Yadav? deep Yadav? Maybe. But then would Pakistan wouldn't give up Baba, would they? So that probably doesn't work. Yeah, because what you need is... So e- England probably want one more adult batter, don't they? Oh No, England would want a top order t- player, but who in the world has enough top order players to trade with England? because mm, you need you almost need a surplus on both sides don't you do new zealand have unless you like you trade let's say england trade for daryl mitchell and try him out as an opener, and then if it doesn't open they've got another surplus of guys in the middle order will young's probably the same right what does australia have access of so scott boland and lance morris what does that get you with another team does that get you a really good spinner in Sri Lanka Do they have a second spinner that's good enough yeah this is a Nikon this is an absolutely fantastic question yeah I'm I'm trying to think of teams that have there'll be a really interesting trade that doesn't really help uh it's not a major trade but Scotland is a team that has in their T20 setup two left arm finger spinners that are arguably their two best bowlers um, well, maybe not their two best bowlers, but certainly two of their four best bowlers. And they're both left arm finger spinners. You'd get more for Mark Watt than Hamster Tahir. But I think there's some teams in the world. Ireland would te- probably take Hamster Tahir in a, in a heartbeat. I'm trying to think of some other. I, I'm not sure Hamster Tahir wouldn't be really handy in New Zealand cricket either. He's a fantastic bowler, uh, but he's a bit young. I'm not sure what, 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 and what would New Zealand have to give up for that? You'd be looking at New Zealand trading something along the lines of, I want to say someone like Blair Tickner, but maybe they would want something stronger than that. Maybe one of those backup batters that New Zealand always seems to be, you know, coming along with, um, you know, maybe Scotland, Rebbe Ravindra, would he be interesting to Scotland? If you've, op- you've opened this up, uh, Nick it's a absolutely brilliant, um, question. Um, but, uh, yeah, I'm not sure I answered that great, but the, the Scotland one is the one that comes straight to my head because there's a there's an obvious surplus there that is always going to be a problem because Mark Watt's like a couple of years older than Hamza Tia and Mark Watt is obviously fantastic. I think you can play both of them the same. But if you were trading, you wouldn't keep both of them, right? You would definitely um, trade away. The other interesting one I have is you wouldn't do it now, but in a year's time or two years' time, if you saw any weakness in his game, would you potentially trade ashwin away knowing that you have washington um sundar around and he's going to be younger that's a really really interesting one as well and could you give got boland a better role than australia would give him and ollie stone is another one that comes to mind I'm trying to think if there's any other there might be another west indies scene bowlers might have some redundancy as well anyway That's a brilliant question. Such a random one uh, that has opened my mind up. It's a really good question today. Thank you, everyone. Uh, AJ says, if I ever see you in London, you're getting a pint on me, my guy. I drink uh, bourbon, but I'm more than happy to have a pint of that as well. Mm -hmm. And Imran says, are you watching the West Indies South Africa Test Match? No. So I today watched India, Australia, and Bangladesh England this is how bad it is I have to I, I commented on that game and I still couldn't tell you who both the teams were so yeah I com- I commentated on that one so I had the uh, I, I talked about I have the two screens in front of me I actually I have like four screens but I only activated two of them so I didn't get a headache but you know the big screen for the main game and then the other one so I can do updates and and also follow that along and while I was getting ready this morning obviously watching um India um, Australia there as well and so I, I I've seen very little of um I haven't I've seen very little outside of highlights of South Africa, West Indies, and Sri Lanka, New Zealand. And the same with the women's, um, um, the Whipple. Uh, so it's an incredible, it, it doesn't, uh, maybe I'll have to go back in other years, but it just feels like there's so much more cricket in this period of February, March, than I ever remember before. It is absolutely intense. And I suppose there's a lot of people trying to get cricket being played outside of the, this might be, you know, one of the most, IPL things that's ever happened where everyone's trying to get their cricket done before the IPL now. But it does feel like it's absolutely rammed. And, you know, for someone like me who follows everything, it's like, you know, almost need the matchsticks in my eyes. I think I didn't realise that the Sri Lanka-New Zealand game was starting so soon the other day and I was about to go to bed and I was like, oh, but they're playing now. I could watch that. Um, So, yeah, that's what it's been like. But it's been like that since, well, the Women's World Cup, England, New Zealand, uh, India, Australia was all at the same time as well. Like it's just been absolute. And PSL was on, um, you know, and then you had the SA20 and the other thing. It's ridiculous how much cricket is on. So, yeah, uh, I'm – Doing my best um, to to keep on top of things, even if I'm not uh, watching ball by ball. Um, if you, if if anyone uh, watching these videos or listening to these podcasts uh, has access to, you know, one of the companies who does the ball by ball um, stuff, that's what I need now. I've realised that's what I need. I need to form a partnership with like NV Play or Kadamba or one of these companies where literally I just say to them. I will plug your product all the time, but just allow me because in in a half an hour I could watch a whole day's play, just ball after ball after ball, and I love doing that. When I you know worked for Scotland, I had access to that. It was absolutely brilliant to be able to see a game like that. You see the patterns a lot clearer because you don't have the twenty seconds of your mind wandering. So I was like, ah, I see what he did here. He went straight, 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 wide. All these sorts of things happen. You do miss some stuff as well, of course, but. That's the only way to watch international all this international cricket that's being played at the one time, right? Is you know, literally it all be edited together? Um, just ball, 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 ball. ball, Anyway, uh, this is my life. This is what I do. Uh, thank you for the question. Thank you for the offer of alcohol, AJ. For uh, remember, get yourself a Bodyline t shirts. I think you can see a pile of my Bodyline t shirts if you're watching on the video right now. Get yourself manscaped. Uh, it's excellent. Um, you can support us on Patreon um, and also my sports writing course or sports media course. Now multimedia it talks about podcasts and videos and all sorts of things and how you put these things together. Um, very much. Uh, it's it's taken from my entire career and and why I'm sitting in front of you right now Well, why I'm sitting in front of you right now is uh, because I uh, haven't ended the podcast, but you know what I mean? Uh, but big thanks out to everyone and everyone who did support 99.94 and listening and everything else, you know, it was, um, it was a huge thing for us. It was a, obviously a very, very big, Big undertaking. I still have high hopes, but I always have high hopes. And if I can't get it to work in this, maybe I can get it to work somewhere else. But huge! I just want to say a huge thanks to everyone who's followed 99.94, but also supported all of our stuff. You know, we're getting to the point where I think we can start to factor in or phase in more podcasts um, to my particular or more days of the week for my podcast. So, um, and that's because you guys watch and listen and comment and share and pay and support and buy Manscaped products. (laughs) So keep (laughs) buying Manscaped products, um, if nothing else. Uh, But thank you very much, and I'll see you again whenever I'm next on the show. Thanks for listening to Wagon Wheel on 99.94. Remember to download our app or just search for 99.94 where you find podcasts or on YouTube. This show has an ad-free version via Patreon, which also allows you to ask questions before anyone else and many other extras as well. There is a link in the show notes. And if you want more content, well, I have good news for you, because we have a lot of things. You can follow us on YouTube where we make all kind of crazy stuff like the complete history of New Zealand opening batters, and how Kagisa Rabada was dismissed from a zombie ball. We do a similar thing on TikTok. I also have an emailer that sends out a couple of columns a week, and we run another podcast called Double Century on the History of Cricket. This podcast is hosted by me, Jared Kimber. It is produced by Nick McCorriston. We also have a great support team from 42 with Rati Joshi on socials, Orijoti Senapiya producing podcasts, Maida Akam producing some of the shows, and Makunda Banredi as the head of YouTube content.